Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and my guest today is radio host and author Chris Fabry. Chris, welcome to the program. Great to talk with you today, Josh. Now, your book that is coming up, it's going to release here in just like a week or two, I think. Uh, it's called A Piece of the Moon, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it. And you know all about the book, and I know about the book, but... Mm-hmm. Before we get too far into things, let's slow down, let the listeners in, and give them sort of your elevator pitch for this novel. Well, this this novel has been rolling around my soul for 40 years because I, when I was a teenager, I was able to work at a little country and western radio station, a daylight to dark station, 5,000 watts, in a town in West Virginia where I grew up. And I didn't want to be in radio. I, I had no design on it. But I went there, and this was the station where if anybody made a mistake at some place in some bigger market, they would bounce all the way down to Country 16. And so I got to work with a lot of people who had made some mistakes but had wound up there, and I learned from them so much. So I had in my mind for 40 years all of these people that I'd met who were trying they were in one place trying to go someplace else, and I wedded that experience then with the idea of a man who really wants uh, to people to read the Bible. It's in his DNA for them to read the Bible. And what he's going to do is he's going to hide millions of dollars worth of cash and coins in a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, and he's going to hide it in the hills, and he's going to give people clues from the Bible so that they can go and look that up and find the treasure. And so the one story is the treasure hunt that runs all the way through there, and you get these biblical breadcrumbs that are sprinkled throughout the story. And the other part of the of the book is what happens in this little town. I call it, I fictionally titled it Emmaus, West Virginia. What happens in this little town with this little radio station and the people who populate it and the uh, people who call in on the morning program and the and the uh, donut shop and the place where they buy their coffee. So it's a it's a very small story, but it turns out to be a very big story because I think it represents all of us, the longing that we have, the desire that we have for connection and love and uh, riches and fame and all of that, uh, it just kind of ties it all together. And there's a love story thrown in there as well. So, I mean, what could be better than that? Mm, you got a little bit of everything. And um, I think in my review of the book, then I said that it is, this book is really, it's, it's, a, it's a love letter to old time small town radio. And everything else sort of trickles out from there. The, the the treasure hunt is a very important element. The romance is a very important element. Uh, Clay's character, his sort of coming of age journey, that's an important element. But everything revolves around that small town radio station. What... What what have you seen in, in the because you're still you're, you're still on the radio now you're the host of Chris Fabry Live, how has radio changed in the time that you've been on air, and are there places that you still get that feel of like this is more than just a radio show but it's actually a community? Yes, 
Oh, that's that's radio used to be. Uh, I'm excited by your question because I've, I go 15 different ways. But radio used to be what social media is now. You know, the stuff that you'd hear on the radio. It, it, here's what's different now than listening to the radio. Somebody would throw out a question on a morning program, say, and they'd say, "Who was the actor who played in such and such a movie?" or who was, what was the name of the character on Andy Griffith that came in, the drifter of the family that played the banjo and they played bluegrass music? What was the name of that family? I'll take the third caller now, you know, that kind of thing. And now all we have to do is say, you know, ask our phone, who, what was the family on Andy Griffith's show? And you've got, you know, it pulls it up and it a- answers it for you. All of our questions are answered by somebody else. We don't have to think about it. You know, the, the the way that we go from point A to point B, we have to remember the directions. We just ask something else to navigate us there, which is a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong, but there's a there's a part of our brain that is that is softening up that is not as uh, strong as it used to be when we had to remember some of those things. Yeah, so I think that uh, go ahead. It, it's a lot less relational. It is, and it's. And we don't lean on each other. You know, I could, because uh, in the morning programs that I did, I would lean on my co-host or or the news person or the traffic person or the weather person. I'd lean on them for something, and I'd throw it to them, and they'd come in. Now it's all just one. You know, you don't you don't have to have a relationship with other people. You can just ask your phone mm-hmm. or the or Google it or whatever you use. Um, so that's different. You know, the, the, the culture is different. The, the way that you play the records, you know, now everything is, even my, the board that I use is on my computer, you know, where I, I modulate the, the volume of, of my voice and, and every, and the, the music that comes in there. I see it on a screen where it used to be I had a tactile feel. I remember the, the old gates. G-A-T-E-S, the Gates uh, board that we would use, and it had these huge knobs on it. They call them potentiometers or pots. So you'd grab the pot and you'd turn it up and you'd flip the knob to program, and then at the same time you'd flip the the turntable uh, control and it would spin, so you'd have to queue up the record, the 45 or the 33 and the third. You'd have to queue it up a half turn so that it didn't wow like that. Now all you hit is, you know, a button, and it plays the music. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, one is better than the other. It's just it's so wildly different. And and one of the really important things in the story is there's a character in there, a 15-, 16-year-old kid, who gets gets a job at the station and he has a really bad stutter, and the fellow who's the station manager says, "Well, you know, I I think I can help him to the woman that who's taking care of him," and what he does is take him into the production room and make him read the weather forecast and show him on a splicing block what you can do with a razor blade and a grease pencil to get the the sound of his voice so that he can hear what he would sound like if he spoke unbroken. And that was one of my favorite things to do was to to show this this kid Clay what he would sound like if he didn't have the stutter. Mm-hmm. Uh so there's a there's an awful lot I could I could talk all day about that. Yeah, I was going to ask and you may have already implicitly answered this question, but I was going to ask 
with your background in radio, was there any character that you felt like you were drawing from your own past or even just characters that you're like, this is an old boss I used to have. I'm not putting his name in, but this is definitely his or her character and personality. Yes, absolutely. There, There's one character who kind of comes in the, the book about halfway through, and I can remember this fellow working at the radio station, and he had such a great voice, and I idolized. I wanted a voice like his because mine was higher pitched and it didn't, he had this crusty sound and it just sounded like he could talk like this. You know, it's like, oh man, I want a voice like that. And he was one of these people who were at that time in his life, I don't know what he is now, but he just wanted to get to the next biggest station. He wanted to get, he wanted to work his way up. And so there is that sense of the longing and the struggling and the striving to be a success. Um, and one of my other friends who worked in radio for a long time said to me that I've never worked with anybody in radio, any man in radio who had a good relationship with his father. And I saw that as well with a lot of the men that I worked with, especially that there was this uh, drivenness to impress somebody, and they didn't know who it was. But, you know, it turned out to be a father figure in their life that they never had. Um, I, I love the character of Waite because Waite is the morning show host, but he's also the manager. So he hires all the ne'er-do-wells, you know, the people who have fallen, the people who he wants to give a second chance to. Uh, I had several people like that in my life, but one of them was my first station manager. His name was Seeb. I, I dedicate the book to Seeb. His real name was Naseeb S. Tweel. And uh, he he gave me <laughs> he gave me several second chances. I'll just put it that way. When I would mess up, or I'd I'd sleep in, and I, when I was supposed to sign the station on, <laughs> actually that only happened once, and it only happens once when you you know <laughs> you got to make up the uh, spot load when you go in. But yeah, there's there's all kinds of people in that book that I can close my eyes and and see today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to Clay for a second, or the kid, as he's called. Um, his uh, I won't spoil what the payoff to his storyline is, just to say that there is one. And yeah. that alone is worth the price of admission for this novel. Like That, that could be the story just itself. Um, have you, like specifically, you said you know he has a stutter, he's working on it at this radio station... And it, it sort of just like gives him a lot of confidence. Yes. And have you know specifically have you have you met anyone who's overcome something like that in radio? You know, I I kind of based Clay on my own experience because I felt um, when I the very first time I sat down and the DJ that was there say you take the next one you know mm-hmm. or you read this copy or you read the news here. I just got so nervous, and it was, it was almost an act of, it's like jumping off a cliff to turn the microphone on and to project and to, you know, to actually do the, it just made me break out in sweats the first time. And then you get you get kind of used to it. Um, but I think the, that whole confidence thing then came inside of me. The longer I did it, the more confident that I, that I became. Uh, there is a scene in the book where uh, it's kind of a life or death situation, 
and it, it involves a flood, and Clay is at the station. And I experienced this when I was a kid. I got a call. I didn't have to work on this Saturday. It was like I was supposed to work later on the Saturday, I think. And I got a call from the morning guy. He said, get down here. There's The river's up, and I need somebody to run the board while I go help some people. And um, so I go, you know, it's my day off. I didn't really want to do this or a few more hours that I had. But I went down, and I thought, well, you know, this is extra time for me. I'll just have fun with it. So I started playing any song that would uh, have the word rain in it or have water or (laughs) listen to the rhythm of the falling rain or Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain or Kentucky Rain by Elvis or Ronnie Millsap, uh, he had a rain song too. I was just playing it. It wasn't I clever. And I got a phone call from a listener, you know, one line lit up. And she said, uh, we're out here getting all of our stuff into a canoe to get it from the house to safety, and you're yucking it up on the radio about the rain. And and I, my jaw kind of dropped, and I, I don't even remember what I said to her. But it, it made me think, wait a minute, this is not just me talking on the radio and playing songs. This is, this is real life. Mm-hmm. And when the fellow who had me come in came in and sat down, and I said, hey, did you hear what I, was, you know, what I did? And he said, yeah. Yeah, Chris, I did. He said, what you don't understand is, you know, people are losing their homes now. They're losing everything. And so when you are, and he didn't say it that kindly, <laughs> as I recall. Uh, but it was this, it was this wake-up call as a teenager that how much words count, both positively and negatively, mm-hmm. and how much if you cut somebody with a sarcastic remark, how much it can... Uh, tear people down um and and also on the positive of that if you can if you can use this opportunity there's a flood here to reach into people's lives and tell them hey we're here for you it's going to be okay we're going to we're going to get through this together you know everybody pull together if you can use it for that you can use it for great good or for great evil and so that was the the time that I learned uh, that really hard lesson. But I'm, you know, I'm glad that I went through that because every day that I go on, I remember I remember that feeling of somebody saying, you know, you said this thing or you played this and you were just having fun, but we're out here in the real world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The communication is like it, it, it's that thread that connects all of us. And I think you really you really see that in what radio was for a lot of places. I mean, radio is still that for a lot of small towns even today. Yes, I believe it. I believe in it. And I do it. You know, the show that I have is, is syndicated across the country in the afternoon. So, you know, it, I, I do a quote unquote national show. But what I've called it is the radio backyard fence, mm-hmm. because the best thing that happens in life really happens in community it happens in a neighborhood so if i get a call from somebody in georgia or somebody in chicago or somebody in spokane washington they're at my back fence and it brings us together it shows us how you know how alike we are but you never have a relationship that you have like you have with a, a local morning program 
the, that's reading the the school lunch menu that your kids are going to eat that day is giving you the weather forecast if you're going to have a picnic or the church social that you're going to you know it's you you are right there in the middle of life with that that those groups of people that are that are listening to that station and that's why I really believe in the power of of local morning radio. Mm-hmm. Now, from a from a technical perspective uh, in the writing of Clay's character. Uh, this, and I'm, this will eventually become a compliment, so just hang with me on this. <laughs> okay. I, I generally, generally speaking, do not like reading a novel where the character's speech is modified in the text so that you can see how they speak. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. so like a character has an accent, so there's all these apostrophes, hello, governor, and you know, so on. Um, right. and, and I've seen authors write a stutter like that and i'm just like you know i I can imagine the stutter just i don't need the whole line of the page to be one word but and this is very high niche praise for you Uh, it did not infuriate me (laughs) to read clay stutter because the way that you write it it becomes a visual aspect to the story because you see him improve over time was that something that you really took time to develop, or did you think about it at all uh, as you were writing this book? I did. It was more in the editing phase that I that I looked at that more closely than when mm-hmm. I first wrote it, you know, uh, because I went back and forth on that, too, because I, I have the same feeling. It's like, I know he stutters. You don't have to tell me every time he stuttered, you know. But I felt like there was something. There's, <laughs> there's one scene where he's walking back home and the dog that he has kind of uh, latched onto runs away and he's calling for the dog and he's sitting uh, at a in a graveyard with the dog and he's talking to the dog and I can't have anybody else respond to him it's got to be just him and you see him practicing his words mm-hmm. for the dog in this uh really important place to him and looking over at the tower and everything and that 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 scene to me just brought together so much of of his you know struggle and his longing and the past the hard past that he has and the the loss that he's gone through um so i i just felt like you know what sometimes you just go by gut sometimes there's a there are grammar rules uh, you know, I can go back to Mark mm-hmm. Twain and make a really good case because Twain used it in Huck Finn. You know, he's, right, he's yeah. all over the place with that. But I, you know, I'm not Mark Twain. But I just felt on a gut level, no, I got to put that on the page in order for the the reader to see what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you did a good job. It works. Uh, even reading Huck Finn for me, I <laughs> was a struggle because I'm just like, I get it, all right. Uh, but. <laughs> For to not only be able to be like, okay, I can see this, but then for there to be a visual like, oh, I can see him getting better at this, um, right. is is very very helpful. And uh, the treasure hunt element to the storyline that's sort of where things start. It's a driving factor in the book, but it's not the primary focus. Um, what what's the story behind that? Like, where did that part? Because you you could take that storyline out of the novel and you'd have to fix some things on the hind end on you right. know how how do things sort of all pan out and everything but you could really take that storyline out 
and it wouldn't damage the core thematic elements of the novel in many ways. Um, so what it, it, you know, it adds to the novel. It's not unnecessary. But yeah. uh, was that storyline in there from the beginning, or what made you sort of make that the wrapping around which the story was put? Well, I felt like that. Uh, I based it on Forrest Fenn, who hid a wrote a wrote a long poem and hid a bunch of money in the Rocky Mountains. And one of his motivation was to get people out into nature and exercise and breathe the clean air and and all of that. Plus, I think he really wanted to <laughs> to sell this book that had the poem in it so that people would read it and then try to find the treasure. Now he died. I think it was last summer that he passed away, and before he did, somebody said, we found it, we found the treasure, and they had a picture of that. So whether you believe that or not, it, you know, that's, that's what happened. Uh, there was a pastor in Colorado who thought he knew where it was and who actually fell from a precipice and died looking for this treasure. Um, so I read all of that, and I sent my editor a note, and I said, hey, this would be a good novel, you know, a novel of people who from all different walks of life are trying to come together and trying to find this uh this treasure maybe kind of like survivor you know maybe you mm -hmm. could have people from you know all different kind of racial background and they're all in the in the mountains looking for it and the more i thought about it the more i thought of the uh the idea of a man who wants to get people to read the bible instead of getting out into nature he really believes that there is eternal treasure in the Word of God, and he wants to entice people to get into it and to find eternal treasure for themselves, not just a temporal treasure. And so I asked the question, what would happen if that, you know, we're in West Virginia where I'm from, uh, what would happen to the town, what would happen to the churches, what would happen to the people? And the, the little radio station is, is where you find out a lot of the information about this old guy, Gideon Quidley. Add to that, then, the, um, the, the moon rock. Larry Burkett, I, I was friends with Larry for a long time, and I never heard the story until his sidekick, Steve Moore, told me that there was an astronaut who had actually given him a, a moon rock from the Sea of Tranquility that Larry's grandkids had taken to school and shown to everybody at show and tell. Um, and there's a big, big controversy about that. Was it really from the moon or was it something else? And if it was from the moon, you know, how much was the thing worth? Um, and so I took, I took those ideas and then an old song from a guy that had grown up in this little town where the radio station is and had a one-hit wonder, and the title of the song was A Piece of the Moon. And so what I think my editor said, uh, after I'd done the first draft and I sent sent it to them, it, it, I had done kind of what you had just suggested, that I'd made the the treasure hunt was further back in there. And they said, what we need to do is see that kind of just about in every chapter, you at least make reference to it. That is the thread that will pull people along because readers along, because they want to know who's going to find this thing. Is it going to be the person who is real greedy and who, you know, who wants to take over the town and all of this? Is it going to be some uh, indigent soul who has 
very little, you know, who's going to become rich overnight and what would happen to them. So it's that uh, it's that thread, I think, that runs through that's not – it doesn't bowl you over. It's not like an interstate running through the middle of your town. It's just kind of a, a, a little thread that runs through the whole thing that I hope then will – Make people ask the question, you know, I wonder where that is. Is there a clue here? What is that verse that the old guy uh, mentioned? What does that mean? Uh, it's it's basically there to keep you guessing and asking questions. Yeah, I mean, it definitely had me going because that was the part where I was like, so right at the beginning, uh, right, right at the beginning, you have a pastor who thinks he knows where the treasure is, and right. he's he's wrong. And so immediately from the beginning, I'm going like, I, I should be able to figure this out. I should be able to know. <laughs> I, I want to yeah, figure this out. You you have all the clues. See, and that's the thing. That's what I love about it. There's another character then who who doesn't want anything to do with the the treasure hunt because he doesn't. He's walked away from faith. He's walked away mm. from the Bible. He's walked away from you know anything to do with that because he's been so hurt by it. You you find out later what what the hurt was, but the the hunt then for him is not where is the treasure. The hunt is where is this pastor who used mm-hmm. to be he used to be friends with. Where is he and where does he think the treasure is? So it's a it's a mystery inside of a mystery. You know you got to solve both of them in order to find out the location of where Robbie, the pastor, went, mm-hmm. and then where the actual treasure is. Yeah, we have to not only figure out what Gideon was thinking, but to figure out what Robbie thought Gideon thought he was thinking. And it's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it really t- takes you takes you on a journey and and gives you a gives you a good resolution to it all uh, as well. What do you hope above all that your readers will take away from this book? Hmm. Well, I the power of second chances is one of the things that runs through there, and um, I'll I'll talk about Wade. Wade is a guy who, you know, he's been he's a, he's an older guy and he's been through life and he's seen a lot of people come and go, and he's basically allowing these people who have fallen in some way, made some kind of mistake, to find a place to land and start life over again, and he thinks that's really important. But what you don't know as you're reading about his life is Wade is a guy who needs a second chance. Wade is, and we all do. We all are people who need, um, you know, God to invade and to transform us, not just to have us do good things. And so you, you kind of see the arc of Wade's life. And what happens is without giving anything away, what happens is the, the second chances that he gives to others comes back to him. And that's one of my favorite parts of the of the story. And I guess I guess anybody who has had life beat them up really badly. Uh, there's a character that uh, her name is Pidge. Pamela mm-hmm. is a real name, but mm-hmm. she's called Pidge because she has a pet pigeon that walks along the the, uh, the counter that she works at every day. And Pidge just feels like unworthy. She's She's made a lot of mistakes in her life, and she doesn't feel like she deserves the love of a good man anymore. And she hears all these country songs, and she sees herself in just about every lyric. But it's that song, A Piece of the Moon, that that she hangs on to. And you see that you know change in her life and, and uh, allow her to... 
one of the big questions she has is how can I give somebody else something I don't have? And other another character comes beside her and says, "It's going to be all right. You're going to find what you need to give." So I hope it gives a lot of people hope. Uh, I hope it, I, I what I hope most of all is you just get in the story and you forget it's a story that the people mm-hmm. feel real to you. Mm-hmm. Because when that happens, then the same thing that happened with David when Nathan told him a story about the about the little mm-hmm. lamb that mm-hmm. was sacrificed, you know, and, and the traveler ate it. Uh, when David was so incensed about that, Nathan said, "You're the man," and David saw himself. So a good story is basically a mirror that we can see ourselves in, uh, and that's what I hope happens. Mm-hmm. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little more in general about your writing career, not just this book. Uh, you've won, I, I think I got this right, five Christie Awards, uh, which yeah. is quite a number. Uh, you've written many, many books, uh, you know, children's books, young adult books for adults. For listeners who want to write, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started your writing career? Oh, that's that's good because I spent I spent a long time, you know, I I kind of re I got the writing bug again because I had it when I was a kid and then I lost it because I didn't have a lot of encouragement. Um, so when I started, it was like this seven year journey for me in the 808 section of the local library, reading everything I could about how how to craft a story, how to write. Uh, if I could start over again, if, if I could, if I could go back and tell myself anything, I would tell myself what Jerry Jenkins told me at the time, and it was, "Don't, don't try to write a novel first thing out. Mm-hmm. Write smaller pieces. Write short nonfiction. Write um, short fictional pieces. Short stories. Get your feet under you with." something that is manageable rather than you don't start out being a brain surgeon by cutting into the skull you 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 start out by doing something smaller than that you know um and and that's really what i did when when jerry he kept hammering this into me and so what i did was i got a job at the local newspaper i was still doing morning radio at the time but i got a job at the kind of the about-town guy and, and had a column in the local uh, one-time-a-week newspaper, which who knows if that's still in existence now with the Internet. Um, but I just wrote a column. It was a, about town, about you know the stores opening or my, something with my family. It degenerated into uh, just little observations, things that I would see walking around town or going to the library. And writing that every week gave me something to kind of hang my literary hat on that this is a, a due date every monday i've got to turn this thing in i've got to get my thousand words or 750 or whatever it was i've got to get that in every time and i got i think i got 35 dollars for it every week 35 dollars a week i'm a working paid writer and i could call myself a writer because i was putting words on the page and they were paying me for it um so i would say you know do start small don't start with the huge les miserables that you want to write eventually 
do do the small things mm-hmm. and work yourself up to the place where you can do the the larger the larger things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good. That's that's really good advice. Uh, what what does your writing day look like? Because I know that like you you've got to be an incredibly busy person. Like you you have the radio show. When when is it that you find time to write? And um, you know for yourself, do you set a certain? I'm going to write this amount of time. I'm going to put this many words. What does it look like for you? I like to have a goal of. It used to be when I was writing and that didn't have the radio program, I'd do 2,000 a day. That was my goal, 2,000 words a day. Now, with every, like you say, and, and my wife and I have nine children, too. Uh, many of them are out of the house now. But when we had little kids, it was really hard. You had to, you know, I didn't watch TV for a long, long time. <laughs> you have to cut some things out. Mm-hmm. If you're going to spend time with your family, if you're going to have a relationship where your kids actually know what your name is, then you've got to have that time. For me, uh, because I worked in morning radio, I was in the groove of getting up and being at the station at like 5 a.m. So when that ended, I didn't stop getting up at that time i i kept the discipline going and so i always write early in the morning i'll come in here and i'll spend a little time devotionally and then um i'll i'll start in on whatever it is that i'm working on and usually what happens is by you know if i start around six by nine or ten i'm i'm done i've mined the things that are there and if I wrote for a couple more hours, I'd probably get a tenth done of what I've already done because the the juice is just not there. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I've I've given myself grace with that now. And it's like you know, uh, Hemingway always talked about stopping a story, stopping your chapter where you're writing in the middle of the action. You know, if you've got somebody who's going to punch somebody else, you've got their fist reaching their nose, and you stop right there. Because when you come back the next day, you're going to know what the emotion is. You're going to feel the anger. You're going to, you know, the, you see the blood that's going to <laughs> that's going to be splurting right, out yeah. of that nose. Um, and so I try to do that as well. I end at a point where I know what is going on very well there, so mm-hmm. I don't have to ask the question, "Well, what do I write today?" I just pick up where I stopped uh, the day before. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask a question, and this is probably something you've not thought about in a while. Uh, but I, for the first time in many years, um, have, have picked up the Left Behind books. You mentioned Jerry Jenkins uh, a little bit ago. And um, I had probably not looked at the kids' books since I was a kid, uh, back when those books were first coming out. And I did not realize until I opened the page that you were actually involved in that. Uh, so I know this is separate from anything else that we've talked about, but just from my own curiosity – uh, what was that experience like, sort of being a part of that phenomenon and being part of that book series? It was unlike anything that I'd ever done. Um, I, in 1995, my first book came out, and I had published, I think, five of the, five books by the time that the Left Behind Kids had started, and there the each of the adult books had four kids' books mm-hmm. uh, to them. So they were going to do, total, they were going to do 40 children's books. 
and Jerry wrote the first five, and I remember saying to him, hey, if you ever need any help with those kids' books, you know where to come. Well, he was on a pace because of the sales. He was doing two a year of the adult books, and he just could not do the the kids anymore. And so I remember the it was December the 18th, of 1998, uh, the agent that that uh, represented both of us called and said, "Hey, Chris, you want a job? <laughs> you want to start writing these kids' books?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." Um, when do I start? And that began. You know, I wrote 35 of those kids' books in in a few years, and it was a uh, it was it was really hard because at the same time I was doing the left behind audio too. I was scripting right, that. Yeah. Um, but it, it was so it was an immersive thing that I would that I got on the treadmill every day. And when 9-11 happened, uh, my agent called it was actually my the editor at Tyndale called and said, can you believe what we're seeing? It's almost like the stuff that you guys have been writing about is happening in front of us because of the world, you know, the cataclysm that was that was going on. Um, it was. It was unlike anything I've ever, you know, the, the kids' books sold hundreds of thousands of copies. I, I've never done that with, with my, the books that are just mine, you know. Mm-hmm. I've never sold hundreds of thousands of copies, but they were flying off the shelves. And kids, here's the other thing. Tim LaHaye, Dr. Tim LaHaye, who passed away a few years ago, he had a thing. He said, I want you to write in each book a a believable, authentic conversion of one of the characters in each book, and I thought, how do you how do you do that? How do you how, how do you not make it just some hackneyed you know somebody mm. prays a prayer at the end and you know that kind of thing? So I spent a lot of time trying to craft real situations in the end times where that would happen, and his idea was, I want any kid whether he or she picks up book number four or 14 or 40, I want any kid to be able to say, oh, so that's how I give my heart to Christ. That's how I become a Christian. Um, and then the letters started coming. When Vicki prayed, I prayed with her. When Judd prayed, I prayed with him. Uh, your book helped me understand what Christianity is all about. And, you know, if it if it had only sold one copy and you get one letter, it had it had been worth all of that. But to see how many people have been affected by it has just been you know one of the one of the great treasures of my my life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we won't tell Jerry this, but I think I actually like the kids' books better than the adult books. <laughs> I'm going to call. I'm going to hang up and call him right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you you can tell him I said that. I don't. I we I interviewed him. And this is a fun story for you listeners. Uh, this podcast began because of Jerry Jenkins. He was my first ever interview. Wow. Uh, he was the person who I threw it out there. I didn't I didn't have a podcast. I didn't have a microphone at the time, and mm-hmm. I had just started book reviewing in like 2008, I think it was, uh, and I just threw out there. Uh, so the, the publicist said you had interview, you know, the publicist said they had interview opportunities. I was just like, I'm just going to shoot my shot and see what happens. And, um, next thing I know, I'm in, uh, you know, Best Buy buying a microphone because I'm interviewing <laughs> Jerry Jenkins. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you buy a Yeti or what? 
Oh, at the time, I don't remember what it was. It was just a, it was not a good microphone. I have a yeah. I have a a better one now. It's a, a blue. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what it's called. Snowball. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've upgraded. I've upgraded my technology in the time. Uh, not as fancy as yours, I'm sure. Uh, but but yes, yeah, so that's you go all the way back to the beginning, and that's where that, that's where it, it started with him. Um, well, you do it well, Josh. You do yeah. it well. And well, thank you. And I have to say, for for those of you who've hung on with us this long, when I got the the review that Josh wrote about the a piece of the moon. As I read this, it was like my jaw dropped open because I could not have written, I could not have captured in a few paragraphs what the story was like and not give away, you know, certain things that happen in the book that are really important. I couldn't have written it any better myself, partly because I'm too close to it. I can't, you know, I can't, I, I'm, I'm so invested in the individuals that I can't take the, the big look at it. But, if you get a chance to read what Josh has written about this, it's just like it's gold to me because you got it. That's what a writer wants is somebody who gets their story and who who understands why the the fiction is there. And uh, you did that. I'm not I'm not telling you that just because I like the review, but the way that you did it was in a, a very crafting literary way, and you didn't use uh, any kind of things like I did with Clay and the stutter. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And it means a lot to know that the work that I do, you know, obviously, uh, a lot of a lot of what I do here is for me. Uh, I'll just be honest with that. It's a, it's a very selfish thing. Uh, I get free books to read. Uh, I learn the craft of writing through reading those books. I get to talk with people like you um, as a result of that. So it's, it's a very selfish endeavor in many ways. And if I can help other people, uh, whether it's the authors of books or publishers of books or readers of books, um, that that's all great too. Um, but um, yeah, I'm I'm glad when it all all comes together like that. Well, when you found something that you really like to do and you do it and you do it well, it's a gift. You know, it's a gift to the world. Um, and so that's that's what this is. And uh, I, I'm glad you're there. Well, thank you. Well, let's let's end with this. And I do I do kind of hate to have you know we, we talked for you know 40, 40 minutes or so now about the book you just wrote. Uh, but I I know the way that the way that publishing goes, uh, you didn't just write this. You've had this done for a while, which means that you're likely on to the next project. What can you tell us about what you have coming up next? No, I don't I don't work on anything in my spare time. Yeah, you know, of course I do. Um, <laughs> You know, there's a there's a story that has been uh, that I've been that I've been struggling with to get onto the page, and it's about a man who has Alzheimer's, who is at a point where he he wants to protect his family from what he knows is coming, but he knows that when he gets to what is coming, uh, he won't be able to to stop it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so I have I've struggled with this i got like 120,000 words on the page and i'm i still don't feel like i found the story yet so the tentative title his name is grayson uh grayson hayes and so saving grayson is the prospective title of the book that i've been working on and i hope i hope i i find the story and that i will uh, be able to get it out there so that you can write a review of it like you've done for a piece of the moon 
Well, I, I look forward to it. Well, Chris, thank you so much again for your time, for being on the podcast. And uh, again, the book releases, it's a piece of the moon. It releases on April 20th. So uh, this podcast, by the time this podcast release, it should be release day of the book or thereabouts. So head on over to your local bookstore, wherever you get your books and make sure you have your copy of a piece of the moon.